sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Welcome to your home for the politically homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please tell one friend you think might like it too. This podcast is growing by word of mouth, everyone. Now, two weeks ago, Jed Dorsheimer discussed how all economic growth centers around the availability of energy and how well-intentioned, socially conscious investing often ignores the simple physics of economic growth. Now, almost 80 years ago, the world discovered a carbon-free energy source in the form of nuclear, an energy source that was on the rise until a mix of market forces, government intervention, and misguided activism brought a halt to its growth. And in this episode, I discussed the history of nuclear energy in the U.S. and abroad with Mark Nelson, founder and managing director of Radiant Energy Group and an ardent advocate of nuclear power's ability to provide a safe, carbon-free energy source. Mark has an encyclopedic understanding of nuclear power and energy markets, and this conversation is really dense. So I'm gonna leave a few trail markers for you. There's also some crosstalk in this. I couldn't edit out due to some technical limitations, so bear with me there. But to serve as a guide in this episode, pay attention to what Mark says about the regulation and deregulation of America's electricity market and how that impacted the long-term thinking when it came to planning for different energy sources. Also look out for the role activism played in stifling future nuclear plants and how echoes of that activism are present in today's socially conscious investing. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. How did you discover nuclear? How did this become a passion of yours? When I was first trying to explore the question of if nuclear is so good, why aren't we doing this? This was me in grad school in the UK in the, in the 2013, 2014 time period. I went to a conference on the energy trilemma facing Europe. What is the energy trilemma? Mm -hmm. It's like a dilemma, but with one more, one more problem to deal with. The trilemma is that you can have energy that is cheap or energy that is clean or energy that is secure and reliable, but you can't have all three. And depending on how bad things get, you choose two or one of mm -hmm. those. Or if things get bad enough, nobody there thought this would happen, but you choose zero. So the reason why I bring that up is because at that conference, I asked like a naive grad student, wait, why wouldn't France be an example of having all three? It's secure and reliable, it's clean, and it's cheap. And they were like tut-tutting and no, that's not it. And these were not engineers, these were prominent economists, yeah. right? So they don't actually understand the way electricity works or what voltage is yeah. or, you know, current or resistance or um, program, any of that stuff. They don't actually know where the real world comes from and they wouldn't know what to do with it if you tried to give them that information. But they did tell me that I was silly for asking about France. And the way they put it to me was one man came up to me and confronted me after that session and said, France doesn't count as an example of solving the energy problem because they didn't do it 
to save the climate. They did it because they didn't have any fossil fuels. That's, yeah, wonderful answer. That, Isn't that I mean, an amazing answer? Because it seems to me like, especially as you look at nuclear energy, it, it seems like it has no friends. Because if you look at the energy debate, you've got the people promoting fossil fuels on one side. You have the people promoting renewables on the other side. And nuclear energy doesn't really neatly fit into any of those buckets. So let's take the green side. How are you normally greeted by them? And how do you win them over? Young Greens even if they're against nuclear, are not afraid of it. Mm -hmm. That's really important to know because whether people have fear backing what they say or just money or both is one of the fastest things you have to figure out before you waste 30 minutes or an hour on a conversation, mm -hmm. right? If I find that Greens are afraid of nuclear and invested in their public reputation, and maybe even personal finances against nuclear, we're not going to get somewhere on nuclear itself. And we either need to find another topic of conversation or start a genuine friendship off of the subject that we're disagreeing about, or it's not worth a discussion. Yeah. I have never run into an oil or gas person who is afraid of nuclear. So that's a good start. Mm -hmm. Some are skeptical it can never get off the ground, but that was more the way a conversation could get off track a few years ago. Folks in the fossil fuel industry have been humbled by 2020. Mm -hmm. 2020 is a year that will live forever in people's minds and careers. It was a brutal year. Some of the most efficient people in all of fossil fuels that I know personally made no money that year. And the ones who were less efficient got fired or went bankrupt. Yeah. So that year made it to where every conversation I've had with people in fossil fuels afterwards has been positive about nuclear energy. I was looking at the adoption of nuclear energy and the construction of nuclear plants, and there's a point in America where that's on the rise, and then it just levels off. So what happened there? Yeah, so nuclear ran into an absolute buzzsaw, a bunch of things at a time. Let me start by just saying how we got to that point where almost every utility knew that it had to do nuclear or it was not the future. If the utility wasn't in nuclear, then it wasn't serious about power. Hmm. And then we go from there to the only way to be solvent is to not get involved in nuclear. And that was about a 10, 15 year transition period, but uh, with, sharper, with sharper moments in the middle. So in 1945, the vast majority of Americans, even high-level Americans in business or in government, suddenly discovered nuclear energy all at once with an, the atomic bomb blasts in mm -hmm. Japan. So until that point, even folks like Secretary of State may not have known about the atomic bomb program, certainly wouldn't have known any technical details. So that's how secretive a multi-billion nations-spanning program was. At the same time, we hadn't really focused on energy reactors, just plutonium reactors up to that point in order to make plutonium for weapons. Suddenly, an immense amount of effort was put in in 1946, 7, 8, 9 into finding enough uranium to keep having any programs at all. That was a desperate, desperate thing. Absolute desperate shortage. After those two weapons exploded on Japan, that was kind of it for a little bit. We used up what we had. So there was a desperate search for more uranium and plutonium, making plutonium from uranium also. And that ended up influencing how we thought of reactor development. A lot of very early reactor development assumed that uranium would be extremely scarce. 
So then there was an extremely successful naval propulsion program where from the ground up, a reactor was designed to have nothing to do with weapons production at all, only to work for energy production for driving a a vehicle in a little self-contained package. Because of the astounding success of that naval propulsion program, which went in two different directions, each direction succeeded in making power work. One was a fast breeding reactor, one that would if uranium is our is in short supply on our planet, we can have as much energy as we need by converting uranium and converting other fuels into energy in the reactor. Mm-hmm. And then the the original propulsion design, which became the basis of the vast majority of the world's power plants, that succeeded well enough that the same team was asked to be involved in making the first commercial nuclear plant in the U.S. So. From that time, from the 50s onwards, and we're looking at just America here, there were some other countries that worked on other reactor types, some of which are still around, some of which are not around, but the American type ended up dominating global affairs. In America, because the early reactors were built quickly and successfully with some of the same teams and people who had been trained in an unrepeatable environment in the war, basically, right? And in the early years of the Cold War, Those teams, those engineers, those laboratories were just extraordinary. They could slap up a new reactor type in months and then run it and then figure out that it either did work and try to keep going or that it didn't work well enough and other reactors worked better. So you drop that style and you keep going in another direction. Well, then we had an era from about, I think, the early 60s was when it started, where the largest turbines of any type anywhere on planet Earth were the steam turbines in nuclear plants because the nuclear plants were getting larger faster than any other technology. Mm -hmm. So this building of large power plants makes a lot of sense if you're looking ahead 10, 15 years in the future and your utility needs a ton more power. So we had an era of, well, you can call it secular stagnation and energy growth Mm -hmm. per capita or even just energy growth period because population growth started to slow a bit. Okay. All the projections for economic growth, for energy growth, all these things started to bend in the 70s with the the first great oil shocks where everything in the economy bent more towards, well, if you bend towards efficiency, then you can do more with fewer power plants. doesn't mean nuclear won't be the right ones of the remaining power plants you should build, but efficiency became important. Then the anti-nuclear movement found its narrative, found its strength, and it found its uh, cultural wave and sort of the spirit of 68 movement where people went out on the streets, students and activists went out and they directly intervened in the affairs of the world. And although they didn't have a lot of impact in a lot of areas, one place they did have a very large impact is helping slow down infrastructure projects, especially targeting nuclear energy. Partly this was a way to stop foreign wars or stop nuclear bomb spreads or whatever. They didn't have a ton of success there, but they did have success at home blocking infrastructure development that was based on nuclear technology. And why did they do this? Well, there was some genuine fear about the overlap, if there was any, between nuclear energy and nuclear war. There was a fear of environmental contamination from radiation, fears that definitely came over from nuclear war fears. 
there was a thought that nuclear reactors were big business and big business is also involved in the war. And so you could fight big business by fighting big businesses reactors. And this combined with the, the very early movement towards renewable energy, where renewable energy developing in the future was seen as a reason you should stop the development of nuclear energy today. And then you had all of these fears, all of these all competing business and political ambitions focused by a few famous accidents, nuclear accidents, nuclear accidents that maybe didn't hurt anybody, but yeah. it didn't matter because the fear was not something based on a physical occurrence or it, it didn't have to be based on somebody actually getting hurt or injured. Yeah. And then the, the interesting thing you said there is that right around the energy shock was when nuclear started to get pushback, which is surprising to me because I would think that's when we just run whole hog into it. Wait, wait. It was when it was getting cultural pushback, but a great economic impetus for development. Okay. Except that with the oil shock, you had declining growth rates in what we might call the physical built economy rather than simply the multiplication of, of dollars or credit money across the world. The rate of change started going slower and slower, whereas the projections for how many power plants or how many nuclear plants you needed to build started to bend too. And that meant that although 73, 74, 75 were incredible years for countries blasting ahead on planning nuclear, mm -hmm. by the time that wave of reactors was getting completed, nuclear had mostly lost culturally and it was starting to lose economically. So something we've avoided in our history of nuclear and how it grew and then faded in the United States mm -hmm is the movement towards restructured or deregulated electricity markets. Okay. Could you explain that a little more? The vision coming out of the 1920s and 30s with Samuel Insull, one of the great barons of electricity in Chicago, was that competition in electricity was the most foolish competition you could have because you're only going to have one set of lines and wires ever, really. You're only really going to have about one set of power plants is in you're going to have about as many power plants as you need to cover peak in demand more power plants than that competing against each other is going to cause immense loss of capital and a very high amount of instability and business risk in electricity so his idea was there should not be competition there should be regulation hmm. and that utilities should compete on capital markets based on performance and that performance is in executing energy plans proposed to, overseen, and approved by elected officials in states, the public utility commissions. Mm -hmm. So this vertically integrated utility model meant that one company would make sure the lines and wires were in good shape and that they connected power plants that they built and operated with consumers who they kept track of, metered, and built. Mm -hmm. And then the big utility would be boxed in by requirements to only do certain work and only get compensated a certain amount for pre-approved work. That model started to break down at this turning point I'm telling you about where it was thought that these utilities had bitten off more they could, than they could chew with these big nuclear plants and they didn't even need the energy for their consumers. In other words, they were trying to get that regulated rate of return by approving fat puffed up energy plans with public utility commissions 
whose members may be elected, but those are public elections that could be influenced with utility money. Mm. So everything I just said, I want you to feel the anger and the indignity of having these big dominating utilities just dictate state politics and run over the consumer and keep charging higher and higher rates because they're building unnecessary power plants. Okay, okay. So in the 70s and 80s, economists started to work on the real world implications of their theories that showed that markets were more efficient than any other way of organizing uh, capital and mm-hmm. that that would produce the best outcomes for the common man, for the, for the consumer. Yeah. In electricity, leaders who had come out of the old system thought it was ridiculous at first. How could you have competing companies on electricity? How could you even do it? Well, the professors and the economists and the consultants and the environmentalists worked together to show how if you forced the utility to sell off most of their power plants mm-hmm. and people could buy them, and, and then those companies could then compete using those old power plants and building their own new ones. And those power plants could compete on price, location, and general execution, and on the price of their fuels to provide a lower energy generation costs. And that would be the first step. Then you would start integrating all the way back to the consumer, uh, disintegrating all the way back to the consumer, shall we say, Mm -hmm. where the consumer could then look at a set of advertisements on the wall and see that this electricity brand is better than that electricity brand, and then they could buy that electricity brand. And if that company did better deals to purchase power contracts, then they would both make money and the consumer would do better. And that other company that would purchase power, they would do worse and go out of business. And that would be consumer surplus because it would be private capital at risk. Instead of having one big company do everything from building the power plants, purchasing the fuel, building the power lines, influencing this, the Public Utilities Commission, and then billing the consumer. But, you know, as you're getting into sort of the, the regulated nature of energy, the only thing I can think of is just the impact price controls had in the 1970s on inflation, on stagflation. But electricity already had the price controls built in because already. that was the price agreed with the utility ahead of time for yeah. 5, 10, 15-year investment programs. In other words, it meant that electricity could serve as a sort of hedge against general energy inflation, depending on which fuel source you selected, Mm. depending on which fuel source you selected, right? Mm. Mm. And if you selected nuclear and plan to recover costs over 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years in a regulated utility structure, then you built a power source whose costs were essentially immune to fluctuations in coal, gas, and oil markets. And so why at no point in time did anybody pick up on this and start building more nuclear plants then? Because momentarily gas and coal and oil maybe were cheap. Got it. But the problem is if you build your new plants, not to run off of uranium with a very steady price, very small influence on the total price of nuclear, and you instead build plants to use fuels that fluctuate, then by the time you see that's a mistake, it's wholly too late. Mm. And as long as the risk has been passed on to the consumer through breaking apart these utilities and allowing the market price to rise and fall with the competing uh, fossil fuel prices, that's the consumer's problem. That's society's problem. That's New England's problem this year. It's not really any utilities problem because that risk has been transferred in a, a low volatility environment, it's been transferred to the consumer. And when volatility increases, suddenly it's too late to save society. Mm. Mm. And so market forces, because of the low price of fossil fuels, 
market forces are going to really favor plants that run off fossil fuels. Is that is that or, am I hearing you correct? Mm-hmm. Or if market forces aren't considered good enough to build enough wind and solar fast enough, yeah. out of market subsidies from far away, maybe in your national capital, will dump in outside money to build those even if the market you set up didn't ask for them. Got it. Then if those wind and solar are on and not even caring about the market because they have their own contracts, they're doing their own thing, they're spinning up and going down and spinning up and going down, it might mean that what power plant gets built are only the ones that can physically survive and operate in concert with those ultra fast rises and falls, Mm. which may mean that market signals can spend years hammering away at the profitability of these nuclear plants stuck in these markets. And if nuclear is considered unethical, then if you have a new investment paradigm that rates the ethics of investing in a company by whether they avoid nuclear, then you seriously damage the ability of those nuclear plants to sell their tranches of power in a stable fashion in a time where you can get cheap natural gas energy, but claim credits off the market to say it was actually solar energy. So Mm. we sort of skipped the part in our story where we busted up a bunch of these utilities, forced them to sell off a... Uh, uh, most or all of their power plants. And then those power plants were bought by other entities like Enron. And then Enron out of Houston would manipulate the power markets from far away because at the point that you break up the central planning, it becomes so complicated that you'll never be able to afford regulators who stay ahead of the innovative, (laughs) innovative market participants like Enron. If a regulator is smart enough to fully understand, they need to get a job in the private sector. Yeah. So you have this really bad situation where the smartest people I ever come across in energy and electricity in these electricity markets openly say to me, they don't understand it. And if you meet somebody like a professor or a, you know, like an alternative energy developer claims to understand the electricity markets, you're dealing with a, with a fraud or a, or a, or a knave. <laughs> mm. And so I'm going to ask this question with the understanding that your last answer led us to maybe an I don't know, but how do you make a justification or how do you make a case for investing in nuclear where the payoff might be five or 10 years away if the market signals are so screwed up that you you can't really make a business case for it? You don't. That's part of the ideological reason they broke up the utilities, to make make the look ahead period too short to justify nuclear. Understood. Understood. So the people who were against nuclear, the smart, young Ivy League lawyers of the 60s and 70s, they joined forces with the Enrons, and they started busting up these regions of utilities. Okay. Okay. Because if the utilities already built the power plants you they want, and let's say those power plants are nuclear and coal, then they don't need to build the new gas and renewables, do they? Mm-hmm. And if you're saying there's an environmental argument to building renewables, and the utilities are saying, well... Maybe in 20 years, we already built the power plants we need. Take it up with your elected officials. <laughs> we can always outspend you. Again, I'm saying that's the, that's the utility cynic's opinion. And there's a lot of truth in that as it is. Right? Yeah. So if you're wanting different power plants built and you can get the policy in D.C. to subsidize it or to support it, mm. you've now got a very interesting mix that can bust apart the central planning, the long time horizon. Now, where this is getting... Ironic, Dan, is that it turns out that mega wind projects need something like this long time horizon and this long look ahead. So they've busted up the entities and the approaches that would have been correct 
for the scale of renewable development that they say is needed. And if you reinstitute that approach, you have to do weird things to make sure to carve out nuclear as bad still. So let me give you an example how this works from the ethical investing angle. If you go onto an ethical investing like rating system, here's one of the most prominent in the world. It's the one run by Morningstar. They bought a firm that does these ratings called Sustainalytics. And if you go further, further back, you find that just some arbitrary bullshit reasons were the way they put together these analytics, Mm -hmm. the the ratings. Yeah. Now they've included some newer things like carbon or whatever, but it's basically what's popular among the people who make the analytics ratings. And if those ratings are the ones bought by other firms, just to get the problem off their hands to say, look, here's a rating system. Here are these experts. We just tell our clients which ones rate the highest on ethics. Well, then you end up with a situation like the following. If you check on Constellation Energy, one of the cleanest energy providers on planet Earth. I think they have a tiny handful of fossil power plants scattered around the different markets. And then they have the nation's biggest nuclear fleet. It's uh, something like, what, 22 reactors or something? Extremely well-performing reactors all over the United States. Like Chicago is almost entirely powered by Constellation nuclear reactors. And if you check this ultra-low carbon, ultra-low land footprint, ultra-high labor standards and, and pay utility you find it ranks lower in sustainability and ethics ratings than, say, a Duke Energy that has a bunch of coal. Mm. It just ranks you as dirtier if you have zero-emission nuclear because that's dirty according to the ethics standards made coming out of the 70s enviro-like movement. The environmental movement has always seen coal as superior to nuclear. They, They were slow and hesitant to embrace climate change because they thought it, it was early on like a ploy to increase nuclear power because mm-hmm. nuclear doesn't make any carbon. I, I want to jump back to something you said earlier, which is you mentioned that there were a couple of countries that really went straight ahead with nuclear as things were dropping off in the U.S. Who were they and, and what was the outcome there? So the easy answer is France, but I want to throw in a few others because they're so interesting, like Sweden and Spain. Mm-hmm. First of all, as always, I want to steel man the arguments of nuclear's critics. Mm-hmm. Spain, Sweden, France were all either already developing nuclear weapons and successfully in the case of France, or were working on them like Sweden and Spain during the period they were starting to rapidly move towards nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. So Spain was working on a nuclear bomb. Sweden was working on a nuclear bomb. In other words, the will to survive, the will to protect oneself, the will for autonomy was what led them towards nuclear energy and it led them towards pursuing nuclear weapons. Does that make sense? I'm not saying the technologies were overlapping. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that the fuel came into the country and was misused for one when it was supposed to be for another. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the desire for self-determination of the leadership of the country and to the extent that that represented the popular will, the people of the country led countries without a lot of fossil fuels to look towards nuclear energy. Okay. In the case of France, the big shock was the oil shock in 1973 that led to an extremely firm decision to move forward with Americanized, American and Americanized nuclear reactor technology, the stuff originally developed for our submarine program, to move forward in that direction and to just build out the whole country's ideally energy supply, but in the meantime, the electricity supply from nuclear energy. And that led to a large series of parallel, lightly uh, staged building programs where 
a large number of identical reactors would be designed at a few different sites. And because France had this parallel construction, and they were careful to limit design changes between series, then they were able to construct, now they have, what is it, 58 reactors, and they were able to construct them over a period of two or three decades. Okay. How are they faring? Obviously, energy is on everybody's mind now with with Ukraine and with inflation. How are they faring versus, let's say, Germany or countries that dismantled their nuclear stock? The EU as an institution, especially as dominated by Germany and Mm -hmm. France in particular, turned against their own nuclear reactors fairly harshly. And the main job of an energy minister, they call it something different in France now. There's no energy minister. It's a the minister of the ecological transition, even though they already decarbonized their energy with nuclear, the problem was to get rid of nuclear as fast as possible. That was the main objective over the last decade or 15 years is to get rid of nuclear power in France. So they successfully crippled their political capital. They messed up their workforce. They intentionally closed very high functioning nuclear plants right on the eve of disaster, right on the eve of this uh, war. They closed a nuclear plant in France, 2020. Is there is there any merit to the arguments or to the concerns, let's say, about production of nuclear waste, for no, example? No, so no technical, or physical, yeah. or social merit, except that people are already scared, and we need to address that fear before we go on to engineering solutions, is my opinion. And yeah. addressing that fear could you, could you is talk- either a local problem or a national problem, depending on the engineering solutions being proposed. A basic engineering solution in the U.S. is to move all the spent fuel canisters, that is concrete barrier. Inside of that is a steel liner. Inside of that are the fuel rods that spend a few years in each reactor. That's the waste. If you move all of that to one location, nothing really changes, but you really are going to want buy-in from the people you're moving it to if they want the jobs and the money from just hosting this intermediate waste storage facility, then that's a great example of getting local approval for what otherwise should be relatively uncontroversial. Now, the old activist movements and the anti-nuclear organizations will work to block transport of fuel, even as they allow transport today. In other words, if a celebrated cause comes up, like stopping any waste solutions from happening, then people will come together to try to mess it up by blocking the roads or stopping the flow of the waste, even if the facility in question answers their concerns, especially if it answers their concerns about waste. Because the point of the waste debate, since the waste hasn't hurt anybody, then the point of the waste debate is to stop nuclear energy and nuclear power and growth and, and economy. It's not to actually worry about nuclear waste. That's what I think is important for people to realize as fast as possible. It's a strategy that was called clogging the toilet, where if you stop nuclear waste from being moved, and then you require nuclear waste to be moved to to solve it, and then you put in law that you can't build any more nuclear, you have to stop using nuclear if you run out of space for the waste, then you shut down the nuclear plant without having anything change with the waste. Understood, understood. And is the fear of nuclear waste overblown? I know one of the things you mentioned was Yucca Mountain in Nevada. That's a a total waste of money. Can you explain why? Sure. Yucca Mountain is an extremely expensive, like costs estimated at 50 to 200 billion, depending on which period of the life of the project you're looking at, that would 
contain not even all, but some major fraction of the spent fuel that has ever been used in the U.S. Well, Yucca Mountain going ahead would give anti-nuclear folks something to block. So until they don't have money, followers, or strength, you're not going to make a successful answer to nuclear waste through building a big facility for it. I have a very strong opinion on that because since nobody's getting hurt now, you can't do better than that. You can't do better than nobody getting hurt. You can't do better than nobody getting killed. You can't do better than nobody getting exposed. So to start Mm -hmm. a facility that cannot improve on the safety record of waste at all, there's just no way for it to improve on the safety record. But to say that you need 100 billion or 150 billion to do it, is an incredible waste. Now, a bunch of that money has already been paid out by the nuclear plants as a, as a fee on their power generation. Mm-hmm. I just think that if you're burying nuclear waste deep underground while people are still scared of it, that will look creepy and uncomfortable, not safe and secure. Mm-hmm. Until people mm-hmm. love uranium and love uranium power and know what nuclear waste is actually containing and looks like and that they can see it for themselves and it's not hurting anybody, you are going to waste an immense amount of money engineering a psychology solution to nuclear waste, a, a lawyer's paradise solution to nuclear waste. What, what people are wanting from the nuclear industry, the reason why they wanted Yucca is because it would transfer the responsibility away from them personally or away from them as a power plant or as an operating company. Everything I'm hearing from you, it sounds like nuclear has a huge PR problem. It has a huge problem in terms of falling victim to short-term thinking, which is a problem that I would argue is endemic in American policymaking. How do we overcome those things? Fortunately, Mm -hmm. I am happy to say Mm -hmm. that the short-term thinking and the partisanship around nuclear is basically gone at the federal level. And it is starting to go away at the state level. That is, both Democrats and Republicans are almost unanimous in supporting nuclear at the federal level. Mm-hmm. It's n- nowadays, if a Democrat and their staffers come out with an anti-nuclear position, they get destroyed over it. In the case of AOC, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez mm-hmm. having staffers that jumped the gun and tried to define the Green New Deal as excluding nuclear, mm-hmm. they had a savage reception, brutal reception, even from their own party, and had to retract it. And those staffers, I mean, that's the, that's the thing. Even the politicians, the young politicians coming up are not really anti-nuclear. They may not care about it. They may not be interested in electricity or production, regardless of their political position, but they aren't really against it. It's not the same situation we have in Europe necessarily. In Europe, a lot of the people in control now are the green leaders that came in in 2020 when it seemed like renewables had won and fossil fuels were unnecessary. That was a blip. It was uh, just 2020. But the people who helped create the devastating energy crisis gained power in that round of elections. Mm -hmm. And so they're finding it difficult to adjust now that nuclear is a necessity of survival Mm -hmm. for Europe. Mm. And now it's just a really unfortunate thing with with that 2020 followed by the whiplash of 2022's gas shutoff from Russia. 
the, a lot of the people in a position of responding to that crisis are the ones least capable, least informed, and I don't know what the outcome is going to be. In Germany, they're still fighting to make sure that all of their nuclear plants shut down on December 31st, yeah. 2022, in the middle of the worst energy crisis in several generations. Well, that's that's the scariest thing to me because I do think that, you know, especially when you look at the support for the war in Ukraine or the support for Ukraine, at least, I, my question is, when does that give? And at what point, what amount of pain are people willing to feel in order to support the Ukrainian side of the war? And Europe's essential to that. And so if Europe starts falling apart on the issue or starts wavering on the issue, then that's a big problem. And the, and the funny thing is just wavering on the issue and then giving up in the war in Ukraine doesn't mean that Russia has to provide you with any particular thing at all. Exactly. It's still all in their hands. Exactly. There's a, like, I think it's pretty clear there's a reason why Nord Stream 1 that had already been authorized for shipping and using for supplying Europe, that blew up. But Nord Stream 2 is still there, right? Yeah. The, you know, the sanctioned one is still there. Yeah. Coincidence, right? Yeah. I'm sure. But like, just because you give up on Ukraine does not mean that that money gets to go chasing any more fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You may still not be able to find any fossil fuels mm-hmm. because you have to produce them and you have to transport them. And if there's only so much... There's that that's going to be a limitation regardless of your attitude on Ukraine. And if Russia starts selectively supplying gas, if you cancel support for Ukraine and you do everything that Russia asks and they start slowly providing gas, it's to their benefit to continue to throttle the flow Mm -hmm. while getting extremely high revenues per unit of gas sold Mm -hmm. through a previously sanctioned pipeline. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I would I would think that they would send the amount of energy that maximizes the gain to Russia and maximizes the pain to Europe because that's the long play. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any way, when or getting back to the, to the folks concerned about climate change, is there any way, do you feel, for us to hit our emissions target without either reducing energy consumption drastically or increasing the supply of nuclear? Like, can we fill the gap with renewables, for example? Let me put it this way. I believe that if we try to do it without nuclear, if we try to hit emissions targets without nuclear, mm-hmm. we're either going to hit those emission targets in an economic freefall all the way through, that is a degrowth spiral, or we're going to have the emission targets canceled long before we arrive at them. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. In other words, we don't have to do nuclear. Nuclear is very hard. Doing things that are very hard are rarely necessary. Mm-hmm. You could just not do them and suffer the consequences mm-hmm. of your inability to do it. So that could happen. For example, it's going to help New England reach their emissions targets if they have brutal, severe winters that destroy infrastructure, kill a bunch of people, (laughs) uh, destroy the final remaining stockpiles of natural gas, bring down power lines. Like That will help them reduce emissions at an extremely severe cost to human life and to uh, flourishing, right? So there are ways. How about this? France had a very severe reduction target for getting rid of nuclear energy. They are on the pathway to hitting that now that they've decided they don't actually want the consequences. Mm -hmm. They are not able to respond in time and bring their plants back to production. They passed a law in 2015 to demand a 50%, approximately, depending on how you interpret the law, 50% reduction in nuclear power by 2025. And they are well on their way to achieving that accidentally through incompetency. Wonderful. And bad luck. 
Wonderful. Yeah, right? Yeah. So there are ways of hitting targets that is not what you intended. Yeah. The UK is going to do an amazing job hitting emissions targets because it's entering a brutal, crushing degrowth spiral in yeah. the entire economy there. Yeah, yeah. So either we hit it by finding new energy supplies or we hit it by the economic freefall of not finding new energy supplies effectively is what I'm hearing. Exactly. Okay. So all across the developing world, countries will stick to their targets whether they keep their targets or not, because energy is expensive enough that they're going to fail to develop and they're going to remain mired in environmentally destructive poverty. So I see nuclear as the key to not having a bad ending for that story. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving it a review. You can also get additional commentary on this episode and other issues of the day via YDHTY's email newsletter at ydhty.com news. Mark's organization can be found at radiantenergygroup.com. That is spelled just like it sounds. So big takeaways from this episode. The first is that the business case for nuclear power is one that assumes its costs will be lower than that of fossil fuels and renewables. And this not only requires a longer term time horizon than privatized markets typically allow, but it also needs to take into account an energy environment we've never been in one where supplies of fossil fuels are growingly scarce or unstable. And the second, and I don't know if you picked up on this or not, was that subsidies in renewables actually increase our dependence on plants powered by fossil fuels. Renewables require power plants that can be switched on and off when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining, which plants powered by fossil fuels are much better equipped to do because nuclear reactors produce power consistently they have a tough time competing in a market where subsidized renewable energy appears cheaper by comparison. And I think this is an important distinction to understand because if economic growth requires energy surplus, as we learned in the episode two weeks ago with Jed Dorsheimer, it means use of traditional renewables will eventually lead to increased carbon emissions, albeit at a slower rate. And my hope is that Mark and his colleagues can promote the use of nuclear as a safe, carbon-free energy source, as I've become convinced this offers the best way for us to decarbonize the economy. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's Director of Continuous Improvement is the Admiral Admiral Adam Yaffe, YDHTY's produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye. Oh,